Well, I'd like to label my message this morning an affirmation from Pops. If I can talk from the thought of an affirmation from Pops. So growing up, I watched a lot of TV shows. Any TV show people? Raise your hand if you're a TV show person. You like watching TV. Okay, all right. Um, I grew up watching a lot of TV shows, and one of my favorites was this classic 90s sitcom that had a total of 148 episodes, and it lasted for six seasons. It starred a street-smart teenager from the mean streets of West Philadelphia, <laughs> and he went to go live with his wealthy uncle in California. The show starred Will Smith, and it was called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Y'all remember the show? It's great, isn't it? It's one of my favorite shows. And what's interesting about this is in one of the episodes in season four, Will's father came back into his life after being gone for 10 years. Will thought that he would remain in his life, but to his surprise, he left him again. This resulted into him being left frustrated and, and sad and abandoned. For those that have saw this episode before, it's very touching, and your heart flutters with emotions as Will cries passionately on the shoulder of his Uncle Phil. And he asks that gut-wrenching question, why doesn't he want me, man? For those that haven't watched the episode, you can literally go to YouTube and type in Will's father's scene. Now, don't do that now while I'm preaching, okay? But later on today, I would encourage you to YouTube that and watch that. It's about a four-minute scene. It's very, very touching. And I believe the reason why he cried, because every son or daughter, for that matter, they need to feel loved by their parents. Will not only didn't have his father's presence, his father's love, because again, his father wasn't there, but he also did not get affirmation from his father. And that's why I believe this text this morning is so special because we see God the Father being pleased and affirming his only eternal begotten son. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17, we see in this gospel narrative that Jesus comes to, from Galilee to the Jordan, which is like, um, remember back in this time, they didn't have like Teslas and cars and stuff like that, right? So they're walking on foot. So this probably would have took a couple of days to actually get there. Now, what's interesting is that John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, you the one that should be baptizing me. You're so great, you're so grand, you're so powerful. You're the one that should be doing this. Remember, he said this earlier, and he said that one is coming that's mightier than I. John the Baptist recognizes, he acknowledges the person, Jesus. Now, I want you to kind of get a glimpse of this and really try to put you, yourself there. Can you imagine? Being John the Baptist, and you're preparing the way, you're baptizing, you're doing all those types of things. And then the Son of God comes out of nowhere. 
the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ. And he's coming to be baptized by you. I mean, come on, like this has to be very crazy. It has to be very shocking. I mean, maybe John the Baptist was very starstruck. No, you're the one that should be baptizing me because of who you are. But Jesus' response is pretty shocking. He says, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Notice Jesus is baptized and then the heavens are opened up and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. For this people back then, the Jewish people back then, uh, dove, the dove symbolized God's spirit. In the climactic moment, God the Father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. These few verses sums up exactly what happened. So we can leave now, right? This is over, right? But I think there's some important themes, some things that we can pull from, because I think as we approach Matthew chapter 3, it gives us some principles that we should model. Because Jesus is the perfect example that God affirms and is pleased with him. He is a prime example for how we should live our lives. And I think one principle, the first principle that we can pull, that we can imitate, is humility. Verses 13 through 14, John tries to prevent Jesus from getting baptized and says, I need to be baptized by you. Again, that is something that I want you to kind of visualize if you can. But God the Son is coming to be immersed in water. Now, baptism, that is something that is a very important thing for the church. And I believe on October 22nd, we have baptisms that are going to be happening. So praise God for that. For those that may not be familiar with what baptism is, it is the initiation rite into the Christian church. Baptism is a public commencement that a person is a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. It is a physical manifestation of an inward spiritual reality. It's where a person comes into some water and they are dunked in the water and it symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. It represents a person being cleansed of their wrongdoing. It symbolizes new life in Christ. Now, baptism does not save you per se, all right? Baptism in and of itself, doing the action, doesn't automatically make a person saved. However, rightly understood and done, it is significantly linked to your salvation story. So in other words, it is appropriate to ask somebody, of course, you build a relationship with them and all that good stuff. It is appropriate to ask them, hey, have you been baptized? And if you are a follower of Jesus, that is something that we should model and that is something that we should do. What's interesting about Jesus' baptism is that it is a, uh, this baptism hints probably that Jesus' ultimate identification with Israel at the climatic stage in history 
confessing its sins to prepare for the kingdom. Understand that when Jesus is being baptized, he's identifying himself, interestingly enough, with sinners. Now, keep in mind, Jesus was not a sinner because Jesus is without sin. He's without blemish. But it is important to note that Jesus, being all the way up there, came from heaven to earth to identify with us, to dwell with us, to be with us, to be with his people. I just think it's fascinating that Christ was baptized. But this text raises an important question for our consideration this morning, RCC. If Jesus is God, then why does he need to be baptized? If he is the mightier one, then why does he need to be immersed in water? Well, Jesus was baptized not because he had sin that needed to be cleansed. Remember, Jesus is sinless. And he had no wrongdoings like me and you have. He had no wrong thoughts like me and you have. He had no wrong deeds like me and you have. And again, baptism doesn't merely save you, but I would suggest that this is a sign. And not only a sign, but, uh, but it gives us an example of what, how we should follow what we should do. Jesus humbly identifies himself, not only with the sinners, but also with the mission of John. Remember, John's mission is to point people to Jesus, to prepare the way. He's the messianic forerunner. So by him being baptized, it's a sign. It's an example that we should follow, but he's also identifying with John's mission. And I would say from this text, John and Jesus, both, they model humility for us. This is something that I think is important for us today because when you look around the landscape of the world, there are so many people that are not humble. They are arrogant. They think that they have it all, they have everything right. And I think humility, a huge dose of humility is something that the Christian church needs today. And I believe as we look at the life of Jesus, we can see humility is one thing that we can take away. And I believe God will affirm us by us doing this. The second thing that I think is important is trusting the will of God. This is another principle that we can pull from this text, trusting the will of God. Verse 15 simply says, And Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It seems as though Jesus has some type of understanding that his life is written. Um, His life has already been kind of laid out, if you will. And things have to happen on a certain accord in order for things to be manifested. When we think about this idea of fulfill all his righteousness, this means that to complete everything that forms part of a relationship of trust with God. As we think about our lives and the different things that happens in our lives, we have to also be confident in the word of God, but also in the will of God as well. 
And there are certain things in our lives that may not necessarily go as planned that we would think, that we would want, that we would like, but certain things have to happen in such a way to fulfill whatever is in our lives. Amen? Now, this is something that I think is important because Jesus has confidence in the word of God. He has confidence that fulfilling God's saving activity that was prophesied throughout the entire Old Testament. Jesus is in compatibility with his life and the will of God. I'm also reminded, too, there are certain things in the Bible where Jesus, he says, like, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. To the point where he was actually dripping blood before he went to the cross. So not only humility, but also this idea of trusting in the will of God. If I can ask you a question, what does that look like for you? In your moments of despair, in your moments of, of, of whatever issues that you have, how do you trust in the will of God, even though it may look very dark right now? This is a good question for us to consider because, again, many of us go through different things. In fact, I know some of your guys' stories and some of the people that are stand, sitting here right now and what is really going on in your life. And for some of you, it's very devastating. It's very trying. But I want to suggest to you from God's word that we can be confident that our story is already written. And God is going to be the sovereign one that's going to comfort, that's going to heal, and it's going to get you through. Even though it may look difficult right now, we can trust in the will of God. The third thing I think that we can look at and pull from this text is obedience. Obedience. So another important feature is Jesus because he was obedient by him actually being baptized. But not only being baptized, but he was also obedient and submissive even though he went to the cross on Calvary. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says, it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross, even death on a cross. He was crucified. I know for us, you know, for some people, when we think about the first century, the people of that time, they would look at us with shock and amazement to see an instrument that was used for capital punishment. And we hang them on our walls. We hang them on our necks. We even have them in the sanctuary. But that method of dying was ordained by God. That was the method that he chose for execution. This may seem strange to us, but in history, dying by means of crucifixion was actually a pretty common practice. But I would also suggest that this was a humble way to die. It was a humble way because Jesus being God in the flesh came from heaven to earth to dwell with his people he emptied himself. He voluntarily laid down his life for sinful human beings like us in a humble way to die for somebody who is without sin. Somebody who is the good shepherd. Somebody who is the prince of peace. Somebody who is the Messiah. 
Someone who is that crucified Palestinian Jewish man. Someone who is the baby in a manger. Someone who came to take away the sins of the world. That's why John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. This is a humble way for this man, this person, to die on a cross. This way of going out is to show the humility of Christ to be subject to such harsh and barbaric treatment. As we think about who Christ is and his humility, he's the one that he's not like me. Remember when we needed somebody to do the announcements and I saw that and I said, no, not me. I'm not doing that. Jesus is the one that comes and dies in our place so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we can be redeemed by God, so that we can experience the affirmation and love and grace of God. This is why we need Jesus, because he died for disobedient sinners like us. He was obedient when we weren't. He was good when we were Bad. He is the resurrected one, and we too will have all power and all glory, and we will one day too resurrect if we model his obedience in our lives. The good news of Jesus is that we can be right with God. We can be at peace with God because by the blood of Jesus, there is peace by the blood of his cross. And this is good news for us. This passage also shows us that there's a triunity that's going on here. We have God the Father, we have the Spirit of God, and we also have Jesus in this text. The one God that eternally exists in three divine persons. So humility, so trust, obedience, And the result from our Heavenly Father is affirmation. If I can kind of bring this home a little bit for you, I just want to ask some questions. You're going to answer them right now. But if I were just to ask you, has your father ever affirmed you? Has your father ever been pleased by you? Has your father ever talked to you? A father's voice is very important for the development of a child. That's why it's so heartbreaking when fathers are not there for their children. So big shout out to all the real fathers that are there for their children to love and support and to care and to uh, uh, approve them. I would go to venture to say that a father's affirmation, in some sense, is everything. I remember having a a group discussion with uh, one of my students, uh, well, well, several of my students, and um, Matthew chapter 3 came up, and we were having lots of conversations about this, and it was fascinating because some of the students was trying to plunge the theological depths of the father of God, or the fatherhood of God, I should say. And 
this person said this, this person said this, this person said this, but it was this one student who raised his hand, and he said, as he approached Matthew chapter 3, he said, this text speaks to me because I grew up without a father. And I was just like, 20-something students in the class, only one student picked up on the affirmation of our Heavenly Father. And where he was at, his social context, how he grew up, that shaped the way he actually read the Scripture. Now, many of you, I'm sure, probably grew up with great fathers and et cetera, but there's a lot of people who haven't for various reasons. And a text like this can speak to the pain, the hurt that some people in America have because they grew up without their father. And it's important to see that our heavenly father affirms and approves his only begotten son in such a way that I think we can run to our heavenly father, that we can run to God. And I never forgot that as I was talking to that student. I ended up having more conversations with him, and he taught me something that day as we were studying, as we were trying to understand Matthew chapter 3. I don't know about you, Roosevelt, but it is good to know that God, our Heavenly Father, sees and knows us. We are not abandoned. We are not damaged goods, but we are loved and accepted by the grace of God. And we have to be mindful of the different voices that we listen to. I say that because in this text, there are three voices that are present. First, the voice of Holy Scripture. Second, we got the voice in the wilderness. Remember last week, John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness? And then, of course, we have the audible voice from God the Father. Three voices that are here, and I would say one that speaks to me. All of them speak to me, for the record, but the audible voice of God the Father. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. This also kind of cross-references back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Remember, in our summer series, we talked a little bit about meeting God in the Psalms and the different types of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2, you don't got to turn there or anything, but it almost kind of alludes to what's going on here in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew is primarily writing to Jewish people, showing way before Kanye that Jesus is king. Therefore, when Yahweh affirms his only begotten son, he is solidifying, he is confirming that the kingdom of God has indeed come. That the kingdom of God is near. <laughs> that the kingdom of God has arrived. I would ask, have you embraced and entered <laughs> the kingdom of God? That happens through faith and repentance and trusting and believing and being baptized, showing that you genuinely believe in Christ. So as we come to a close, if I can just 
exhort you, if I can encourage you to be humble, to trust in God's will, to be obedient to God and his law and his ways, and to rest in the ways that we are approved and loved and affirmed by God through genuine confidence in Yahweh. We are his children, and he is our heavenly father. And the church said, amen. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our sins, just as we forgive those who sin against us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Pray all this in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Amen.